or as a classic line in an old classic movie, uh, probably best describes it if any of you had ever seen the movie Cool Hand Luke with Paul Newman. He was in a uh, southern prison gang, and the prison guard made this classic statement when he said this to Paul Newman as Paul Newman continually got in trouble and found himself in solitary confinement. He said, what we got here, boy, is a failure to communicate. And uh, that pretty much sums it all up because sometimes we run into those problems. And our inability to communicate uh, results sometimes in severe consequences. Other times, as in the case of the story I'm going to share, you know, the consequences aren't quite as severe. But uh, uh, apparently, during the Middle Ages, the Pope had decided that he wanted all Jewish people removed from the city of Rome. And as you can imagine, there was a big uproar throughout the Jewish community. And so the Pope made a deal with the Jewish leaders. And he said, I'll tell you what, I'd like to have a theological debate. Theological debate with any person selected by the Jewish community. And uh, if your representative wins, then you can stay. If you lose, then you have to leave the city of Rome. And so the Jewish community was looking for a person to represent them, and they couldn't find any young scholar that would be willing to take the burden of the nation on his shoulders. And as they searched high and low, they came up with a man who was kind of senile at this point in his life and had spent the rest of his, of his uh, waning days basically sweeping out the synagogue. And, uh, and uh, so they came to him and said, hey, would you mind representing us? And uh, in this uh, somewhat senile condition, uh, he didn't understand that he had much to lose, and he said, that'd be great. He said, the only condition is, is that I'll do it, but no one can speak. He goes, because I'm not eloquent as far as Latin is concerned, and I'm not as eloquent as the Pope, and, and, and the only condition I'll do this debate is if I cannot speak, and he cannot speak. No words have to be said. So they went back to the Pope with this deal, and the Pope said, that's fine. And so the day of this great debate comes by, and they're sitting there one-on-one, face-to-face, and that the Pope basically starts the debate, and he raises his hand, and he goes like this. He holds up three fingers. Now, Mosi, the guy who is representing the Jewish community, looks at him, and he shakes his head, and he holds up one finger. So the Pope looks at him, and then he goes like this, and he starts to circle around above his head with his hand. And Mosi once again shakes his head and he points to the ground where they're sitting. So at that point, the Pope looks at him and he pulls out, pulls out a wafer and he pulls out some wine. Mosi looks at him, reaches down in the bag that he brought and he pulls out an apple. And the Pope is amazed by what has just taken place. And he stands up and he says, that's it. He goes, you win. I cannot compete with somebody with such theological depth as you. And so he walks away. Now he goes back to the Vatican and he's explaining to the cardinals what had just taken place. And he goes back and the cardinals say, well, what happened? How how did you not win? He said, well, basically what happened was this. He said, I started off and I've never met such a man with, with such keen spiritual insight. I held up three fingers to symbolize that, that God has made himself known in the person of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Mosi looked at me and he... he shook his head and, and he kind of looked at me and he, and he held up a one finger. And he said, well, even though God has made himself known in three persons, there is still but one God and we both know his name. And at that point, I, I was just amazed by that. And, and I said, you know, and I, I, I gave my uh, a signal and I, I went like this and, and to let him know that, you know, God has filled his presence in the whole universe. And Mosi looked at me and he pointed to the ground and said, yes, even though God has made himself known throughout the universe, he has still made himself known here on earth through his Holy Spirit. He said, and at that point I reached down, I brought out a wafer and I brought out the wine for the sacraments and I, I made it clear that God has absolved our sins through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And uh, Mosi reaches down and he grabbed an apple and he brought up an apple and he said, you know, basically, but God has been dealing with sin since the beginning of time when Adam and Eve first sinned. This was the plan of God from the beginning. He goes, how can I kick such people out with such depth and the- theological understanding of the, of, the, of the vastness of God? And so that ended their conversation. Now, meantime, back in the Jewish community, Mosi's explaining what happened to all the rabbinical scholars. And they said to him, how in the world did you do that when none of our younger people would even take on such a challenge? He said, what happened? He said, well, I don't know. He said, the first thing I know is the Pope held up three fingers and he said that I'm giving the Jews three days to get out of the city of Rome. (laughs) And I held up one one finger and I said, not one of us is leaving. (laughs) And and he said, and and he said, what happened then? He goes, well, then he said that, you know, we're going to gather all the Jews from all over the city of Rome. And I pointed to the ground. I said, not one of us is leaving this place. And an older lady said, well, then what happened? 
He said, well, it was the strangest thing. He said, he reached in the bag, pulled out his lunch. I reached in the bag, pulled out my lunch. And he said, and the debate was over. It's like, fortunately, you know, or unfortunately, you know, as funny as that is, not all communication uh, misunderstandings or misinterpretations end uh, in uh, such a funny conclusion. And in fact, most of the time, misunderstandings or misinterpretations lead to misapplications with some very serious consequences. And this is precisely what happens. Uh, what happened in the city of Thessalonica among the Christians who had heard or read of Paul's teaching regarding the second coming of Jesus Christ. He had told them that Jesus was coming again. And they were confused as to the interpretation of this teaching. And because they misunderstood, they misapplied. And so as we go through this, as we conclude our study of First and Second Thessalonians, Paul devotes the rest of this letter in Second Thessalonians um, to a problem that had arose from his teaching. Now the problem simply was this. Paul taught, and the Bible clearly teaches, that Jesus is coming again. Now the problem or the misunderstanding or the misinterpretation came about and that the people who heard this teaching or read of this teaching in the letter that was sent had decided that, you know what, well if Jesus is coming back any time and Paul believed that it would be imminent because if you remember in 1 Thessalonians 4 he said this about those who had died and we who are alive will be caught up in the air. So the Bible was always taught that Jesus could come back at any time for his people. Now, Paul believed that, and that's what was taught throughout the Bible. And so because of that, the people that heard this teaching, they decided that, you know what? Well, if Jesus is coming back at any time, I don't like the work. So I'm just going to quit my job. I'm going to hang around. I'm going to wait for Jesus to come back. And I'm going to count on everybody else who still wants to go to work to take care of me. And that was the misinterpretation of what was being taught. And that misinterpretation led to a misapplication. And the misapplication was, hey, you know what? I'm sick of work. I'm sick of going to school. I'm sick of, you know, of kind of earning my way. And if Jesus is coming back anytime, who cares? Then I'll just quit my job and I'll let other people take care of me. And that's the problem that he was dealing with. And as we go through this, one of the things that really stood out in my mind was basically this. And listen carefully to this, because this is a truth that applies regardless of our situation, but, but uh, transcends all culture and all time and all places, and that's this. Any teaching that is contrary to divine teaching is not biblical teaching. And the reason that we need to recognize that is, if you recall in our last times that we've spent together, it's real important that we know the truth, that we establish ourselves in the truth, or hunker down, so to speak, or dig in, and that we hold tight the truth because the truth is the standard by which we compare everything that we hear and everything that we're being told. And so it's important to recognize and understand this. Any teaching that contradicts what God has already said is not a teaching that comes from God. Because God does not lie and God does not contradict himself. And so many times we hear this in life where someone says, well, you know, God led me to do this or God wants me to do that or God wants me to you know, get involved in this. Hey, you know what? If God's already clearly revealed his will or what he wants in our lives in the word and you say what God has just revealed to you contradicts the word, then I say this, you're nuts. You're wrong. That's all there is to it. You're just simply wrong. Why? Because God is always right. And God never changed his mind. So the issue that we're dealing with is these people heard this teaching and decided, hey, you know what? Uh, we're just going to go ahead and quit our jobs and we're going to hang out and we're going to let other people take care of us and we're just going to wait for Jesus to come back. You know, history is filled with wacko people who misinterpreted or misunderstood the teaching that Jesus is coming back. History is filled with people who have sold everything, sold all their possessions, quit their jobs, uh, put on white sheets and went and sat on top of mountaintops looking for Jesus to come back. Now, what I understand is this. What, what, what do you have to be in a white sheet for? I think he will, he will clo clothe us the way that he wants to. And what's white have to do with anything anyway? Like we're an easier target to pick out among, you know, the green grass on the top of a mountain. And by the way, why do we have to go on top of a mountain or a hill coming anyway? Because you know what? He can pretty much pick us up wherever we are. So if you think about how stupid people are and some of the things that they do, it all contradicts what God has to say. And so as we look at this, if you've got your Bibles, it's important to understand, as we look and conclude this, um, this letter, is that Paul gives a very clear warning against idleness. 
And in the Second Thessalonians, look at chapter 3, starting with verse 6 through the end of the chapter. We're going to take a look at four motivations that he gives us to uh, not be idle or, in simple terms, to get busy doing what God wants us to do. In Second Thessalonians 3, starting with verse 6, we read this. Now we command you, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you received from us. It says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship we kept working night and day, so that we might not be a burden to any of you. It says, Not because we did not have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, that you might follow our example. It says, for even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. And yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. It says, Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Paul expected the whole church to work together in solving the problem that they were dealing with here. And uh, the church in love must deal with uh, its members and uh, seek to help them, each one, uh, to obey God. That's the whole purpose. That's the point of fellowship, of being together, of being part of, of, this, of the body of Christ or being part of a group of believers. The whole point is to help us to do right before God. And uh, to assist them in this task, Paul gave basically four motivations or four motives to encourage these careless believers uh, to turn from their sin of idleness and to get busy and do what God's called them to do. And the first thing that we see is this, or the first motivation, is that, and we see it in the exhortation of the Word of God. He says in, the, in this particular passage, if you've got it in front of you, one of the things that's interesting is that he uses a very strong word or a very powerful word to clearly communicate the message. The word that he uses is this, I command you or we command you. Throughout these letters, Paul has on a num numerous occasions said, hey, you know what? We are commanding you to do what we're about to tell you to do. And it's important to understand that because of this word command that he's used so many times. I'd say one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times he's used in, the, in these two, two letters. It's an important word that's used to communicate the message that he wants us to understand. And, and it's important also in our culture to understand this. While our culture seems to indicate otherwise, we need to recognize this truth. Words do mean something. Words mean something. When we choose a certain word to express ourselves or to communicate an idea, that word is supposed to mean something. And even in our culture where we redefine every word that ever, has ever been used, and all you've got to do is listen to p politicians today, and they say a word that you think you understand the meaning of the word, at least historically it's always meant one thing, now you find out that what the person said means something totally different if you question them as to the interpretation of the word. So now we have to ask one another to define the word that was just used because we thought we understood what it meant, and now we're finding out we really don't understand. Well, you know what? In the Bible it's very clear. God chooses words that convey a specific meaning. Words mean something. And the word command means something very specifically, and it means this. It is defined as a military order handed down from a superior officer. You follow that? It is a command. It is not an option. It's not a suggestion. It's not a possibility. It is a command. It is a command that comes from a superior officer. Now, what God seems to have this idea, God has an idea that He is in authority over all. See, God has this idea that He is our commanding officer. 
God uses the word command in a, in a way that we should all understand, and that's this. God's people who have put their faith and trust in Christ and have believed in Him for the forgiveness of their sins and they're baptized or put into this body of believers for anyone who receives Him. They become a right to become children of God to those who believe in His name. We are taken from this, uh, this family over here to this family over here. And God says this, now that you're part of my family, I am your commanding officer and the church or the body of believers is an army that is moving throughout the world. And he uses this vivid, uh, this vivid word picture to help us to understand something. God commands and we are to obey. God tells us the way it is and what he expects. And we are to salute and say, yes, sir, and go about doing the business of what God commands us to do. And so what's happening here is there are some people in this church in Thessalonica who are out of line. They're out of order. They're disobedient to their superior officer. God's commanded them to do something and they have chosen to disobey or disregard His command. And because of that, they have become idle and they've fallen into a sin that God wants to recognize at this point and make very clear to them that what they're doing is wrong before God. So God commands them and they are to obey Him. And the problem that we have is that we have a choice. Now what's really interesting is this. Well, Paul says, we command you. Now, some of us say, well, you know what? What gives Paul the right to command anyone to do anything? Or better yet, by what authority can Paul so uh, vividly say to somebody, or me or anybody else, what authority do I have to say, hey, you know what? What you're doing is wrong before God. And we command you to do that which is right. Where does anyone get the authority to do that? Well, what's interesting is this. We know 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says that all Scripture is inspired by God or God-breathed. That all Scripture comes from God and it's from God's authority that we read what we read. But what's more fascinating to me is this. Not only is everything that God say come from Him as an authority or God-breathed, but what really is happening is this. He's almost saying to this degree, hey, this is a double emphasis. All of what God says is a command from God, but specifically, I'm going to re-emphasize this as even a greater command that you understand how wrong it is what you're doing. Everything God says is a command. Nothing is an option. And what we're understanding as we look at this, so people would say, you know what, Paul? But what authority do you think you can come to us and say, if we don't work, we can't eat? Who do you think you are? And you know what he does? He clearly answers it. Look what he says. We command this how? In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We command this in the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. See, that culture understood what, it, what was in a name. Because what was in a name was authority. What was in a name was power. And you, you remember the story, and I've mentioned it several times, about when Moses went to Pharaoh to ask Pharaoh to let God's people go. And Moses said this clearly to God. God, you want me to go, by whose name shall I tell Pharaoh that I was sent? Or by what authority do I have, Moses, a little shepherd guy, by what authority do I have to go to Pharaoh, you know, the guy in charge of all of this, this uh, empire of Egypt, and say, hey, by the way, I was thinking, you know, you really should let those people go. Say, he wasn't stupid. He wasn't going to go there without some authority. And so God said, you tell him, I am sent you. You tell them, God sent you. You tell them by the authority of the God of this universe, by the God who created him, by the God who created everything, you tell that man to let those people go by the authority of God. See, they understood it was in a name. There's authority in a name. In Nehemiah, when Nehemiah was going to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, he went to the king and the king said, what is it that you want? Nehemiah said this, hey, you know what? I want clear passage to get through all the, the provinces that I got to travel through. I want a letter. I want a, a letter indicating that I have your authority to pass through and to get the materials that I need. You know, a lot of times they would take a signet ring or whatever and they would take a letter and they would stamp that signet ring on there so that when he would go through these districts that he went through and people stopped him and said, hey man, where are you going? He said, I've got the authority to travel this direction and they would say well, let me see your passport let me see your papers let me see some authorization and he would whip it out and show them and they'd say okay then you may travel you may go forth you know there's there's authority in a name 
That's why God has given to Jesus Christ a name above every other name. The authority to judge mankind. Why? Because he was obedient to the point of, of dying on the cross. And because of that, because of his obedience to God, God says because of that, therefore God has highly exalted him. A name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess these Lord to the glory of God. Why? Because God has given Jesus Christ the authority to judge mankind. There is something to a name. That's why there's no other name under heaven. No other authority under heaven by which man can be saved. There's something to be said about the power and authority of a name. Now, some of us haven't grasped that concept. Let me share with you a story that helped me grasp that truth. Okay, I'm playing football and I'm in high school. And I, was, I played defense, I was a linebacker. That's why I kind of got a couple of screws loose. But, but anyway, so I'm in, a, I'm in a huddle one time, and this guy comes running in, and he says, hey, uh, I'm in for you. And I looked at him like, you got to be kidding me. You're not in for me. Get out of here. And we're out in the huddle in the middle of the field. And so we're all, he said, no, I'm in for you. I'm in for you. Said, Get out of here. And so he left. And so we finished our defensive series, and I ran off the field, and, uh, you know, and I forgot all about it because I got hit a couple more times in the head. And, um, and the coach goes, Amrowski, come here. That's never a good sound. I just want to let you know, if you ever hear that, it's not a good sound. So I go over to him, and he grabs my face mask. They always like to do that. They always like to grab your face mask. And he grabbed my face mask, and he grabbed my face mask, and he said, when I sent him in for you, why didn't you come out? Because I didn't want to. Plus, I, you know, I'm, I didn't, I'm thinking, because he's not as good as me either. But that wasn't the point. He goes, when I sent him in, why didn't you come out? He goes, let me tell you something. and Don't ever forget it. If I send someone in, that's as if I'm coming out there myself and telling you to get out of the game. So don't you ever do that again. And you know, your head's kind of getting going like this. <laughs> and, and, and so I said, just blink once if you understand. <laughs> Learn a lesson. But what was the point? The point is this. There's authority behind the name. The coach sent me in for you. And when I, it wasn't, I wasn't disrespecting the guy who came in. I was disrespecting the coach who sent him in. And I learned a lesson real quick. So now as we're looking at all this, we need to recognize and understand something. See, when you and I are disobedient to the word of God whether it's through a teacher who teaches it, a pastor who preaches it, or even you know somebody else who shares that with you, understand something very clearly. You're not disrespecting me or the teacher in your Bible study or your friend that comes to you to confront you on it. It's not, even, you don't even, it's not a matter of disrespecting any of those people. What you're doing is you're disrespecting God because it's a word of God that comes clearly to you through various means. And when God says that we're to do something and we say, no, what gives you the right, buddy? What gives you the right up there in front? What gives you the right to tell me what I'm supposed to be doing in my life? And the answer very clearly, hey, I don't have the right to tell anybody anything to do. But I do have the responsibility to make sure that I teach very clearly what God says. And then you have a responsibility to decide whether you're going to believe God or, or disbelieve God, whether you're going to obey God or disobey God. And that's really the issue, and that's what it all comes down to. And you know what's fascinating, too, is he uses the, the uh, title, Our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that fascinating? Because Jesus is a Hebrew name, and many, many Hebrews had the name Jesus or Joshua. But if you remember, his, his earthly name was Jesus because God told, the, the angel told Mary that you will name him Jesus. Why? Because Jesus means Savior. Jesus was meant to, he would save his people from their sins. But he also had the title Lord Jesus Christ or Jesus Christ Lord or Christ the Lord. And the reason for that is, is because that was his title, the Anointed One, the Messiah. When Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And some of them said, you're John the Baptist, you're a teacher, you're this or that. And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What he's saying was, you are the Savior of the world. You are the Anointed One of God. You are the one that God promised that He would send. There is none other but you. You are the Savior of the world. And it's a divine title that was given to Him for His job or responsibility of offering salvation to the world. So He says, Our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's with authority that He says that. 
Now, what's interesting about all this is we need to ask ourselves the question, what does the Bible teach about work? Because their problem was they decided they didn't want to work. And so we need to take a good hard look at what God says about work. Well, we know this about work, that work is not a bad thing. That before sin entered the world, God had given man the responsibility to work. To work in the garden, to cultivate the garden, to name the animals. And so there was no distinguishing feature between or differentiation between uh, physical work and mental work. There was nothing, there was no separation between those who did manual labor and those who did intellectual labor. It was all on the same plane as far as God was concerned. And so when you look at this, you know, a lot of good things happened to people who were busy working. And work is a good thing. I talk to too many people who can't wait to stop working. My question for you is this, what are you going to do then? It's amazing to me, and I guess what we need to do is be exposed to people because so many of us can't wait to retire. We, we, go, we hire guys. We've got guys coming you know, to work for our company, and they're 22, 23, 24, and they're worried about retirement. I, you know, I, I, it's like, hey, that's fine. Hey, we'll talk about a retirement plan and stuff, but hey, do you have any concern about actually working? Because that would be an important step towards your retirement. You might want to work first, then retire later. Hey, man, you got a retirement plan, dude? No, we got a working plan. Let's try that. You know, and it's like this revelation. Oh, work, that's an idea. Let's try working first. You know, work, good stuff. You know, I, and I learned this from a guy that I worked with who had sold his business. A major oil company bought it. He got a ton of money. He got eight, nine million bucks, whatever. He had all the money he could ever want. And then he had all the time on his hands he could ever want. And he stayed retired for, he was about 65. He stayed retired for maybe three, four years. And the next time I saw him, he was back in business again. And I said, hey, what, what are you doing? He goes, listen, there's only so many times you can go golfing. And believe me, there's only so many times you want to take your wife to the store. <laughs> I said, i got to find something to do. I love to work. He loved to work, and he needed it. And we needed it as, as human beings. God created us to work. And that's really what we're talking about. Listen to me. The best things in life have happened to people while they were busy doing the work God called them to do. The reason they were in a position for the next step was because they were obedient where they were before they could ever be obedient where they weren't. So many of us like, well, you know, if God led me over to here, then I'd be, hey, you know what? You, he was faithful in little will be faithful in much. You need to be faithful where you are before you ever can be faithful where you aren't yet. Duh. But so many of us walk around, oh, I'll be a lot more faithful over here. No, you won't. You're not faithful where you are. You're just going to be as stupid as you are there as you are here. And you need to be faithful right where you are. You know, that's where it all starts. Think about it. Moses was tending sheep when God called him. David was tending sheep, doing what he was supposed to be doing when God called him. Amos was a fig picker when God called him. Gideon was threshing wheat when God called him. Everyone in the Bible that was busy doing something was being obedient to their calling at the time or in the moment of time before God ever gave them additional responsibility to do anything else. Four of, the, of Jesus' disciples were fishermen. They were busy fishing. They were busy doing their business when Jesus came to them and said, Hey, leave those nets behind. Now you come and follow me. They were faithful where they were before they could be faithful where they weren't. Even Jesus himself was a carpenter. I mean, work is good. Get this through our heads once and for all. Work is good. Now, if your kids don't like work, I'll bet it's because you come home with a bad attitude about work. I bet when it's time to get up in the morning, you're grumbling, moaning, and groaning about going to work. They're picking up on it thinking, you know what? I never want to work. Why? Because I'm going to be miserable just like my old man. He's really miserable. Why is he miserable? He hates going to work. So what do our kids learn? Oh, oh I hate work. I don't want to work. And then we can't figure out, well, why can't we get him out to work? I wonder why. I want to go to work either if I listen to people complain about how terrible work was. So what's the point? The point is, be faithful where you are. Work is not a bad thing. And we need to recognize it and understand that. Here's a fascinating. Chuck Colson. Oh, my. Chuck Colson's got some really neat stuff to say, but we don't even have time to think about that. Okay, here we go. Uh, you know, I get his book. There's a book. It's called um, Why America Doesn't Work. Chuck Colson wrote it with Jack Eckert of the Eckert Drug Store chain. Get that. There's some really good stuff. And I was going to share it with you, but I don't have time. Okay, well, I do have time to share this with you. These are more important things. Who cares what Chuck Colson has to say when we can just go right to what God has to say, huh? What do you think of that? All right, let's do that. Okay, okay. Here's the second thing. Okay, we saw the exhortation of the Word of God. Now here's what we got here. We got the example of the Apostle Paul about this whole idea of work. Look what he says. He says in verses 7 through 10, 
He says, uh, you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we don't have the right to such help, but we did it in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. You see what his example was? This is fascinating. Paul is saying this. As an apostle of Jesus Christ and as a teacher of he had the right to be supported by those who he was ministering to. That was a God-given right. But understand something. And any, any preacher, any pastor, any teacher who does that has the right to be supported by those who are being ministered to by that person's ministry. Don't misunderstand that. That's important. That's biblical. And God mentions that. But what Paul was saying was this. But that person also has the right to give up that right to be supported by those he ministers to. He has the prerogative to say, you know what, I don't want anything from you people. I don't want any money from you at all because I don't want any of you to accuse me of doing it for anything less than honorable reasons, which is to share the truth of God's love with you. We have the right as a minister or as a pastor to say, I don't want anything from anybody. I don't want support from anyone. I don't want any money from you because I don't want you to misinterpret or misunderstand the reason that this is being done. Do you follow what he's saying? It's critical and it's important that we understand that. Paul was a tent maker. He was a leather worker. He worked for a living. He worked night and day, it says. He labored night and day, laboring and toiling, so that he would not be a burden to any person that he spent time with and preached the Word of God to. He worked for a living. And it's important to understand how, how powerful a statement that is in a world that is used to people using their position to manipulate other people. It's important to recognize how important it is as a Christian leader in your own realm as well to make sure people around you don't misinterpret why you do what you do. Now, let me read this to you, and I, and I don't care how long that you say it. No one has any plans later, do you? <laughs> but I want to share this with you because this is a powerful statement of what godly living and sacrifice can do in the lives of people around us. Just like we we're talking about the care and concern thing. What a powerful statement that is that godly living and sacrifice makes to people around who are always wondering what's in it for you. Why are you doing it? How are you benefiting from it? What's going on? Listen to this. Larry Burkett, who heads up an organization called uh, Christian Financial Concepts, um, writes of this encounter that he had. He says, a number of years ago, a business associate invited me to lunch. When I arrived at the restaurant, I discovered he had brought an Asian man as a guest. He says, with involuntary habit, uh, habit, I quickly sized up this man. He was poor since he was wearing a suit made for a man two sizes larger, and he had very bad posture. He says, as the meal progressed, I learned the man was from China and had been a Christian for more than 30 years and was a traveling evangelist in his home country. But unlike evangelists in the West, he did all his traveling by foot. It says, in the late 1940s, this man had fought with Mao Zedong's communist army against Chiang Kai-shek's army, and when Mao Tech took over, he was a well-positioned communist official. He says, to rid the country of dissidents, Mao sent execution squads throughout China. On the hit list were non-communist officials, school teachers, those with relatives in the West, undesirables, and especially Christians, since they were opposed to atheism. It is estimated that the communists executed 25 million people during the first 10 years of Mao's reign. He says, this little man was directly responsible for more than 10,000 executions during the first year of communist rule. He says, while traveling from village to village, killing the dissidents, he and his squad came across a man transporting manure to a community garden. When asked who the, lender, or who the leader of the community was, the man replied, I am, sir. Well, a good communist wasn't about to believe that. He had seen that what Lenin taught was true. Under the old Chinese feudal system, leaders always exploited the masses. Says the communist leader said, even in our perfect system of communism, leaders do not handle manure. That is a servant's job. To which the man replied, here we do, sir, for this is a Christian community, and the Bible says that God's leader is the servant of others. This so startled the communist leader that he forgot to shoot the man. Instead, he decided to stay and observe this group of Christians. They shared their food with other villages whose adult populations had been wiped out. They adopted hundreds of orphans. They even prayed daily for the communists who had passed laws making public prayer a capital offense. 
He says, and through their testimony, the communist leader trusted in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Hoping to share Christ with his former comrades, he headed back to Peking, where he was instantly jailed and put on trial for his life. In court, he witnessed to all who would listen until they actually sewed his mouth shut. And over the next four years, his wife, children, and every relative were execution and retaliation for his treachery. He was beaten harshly, and, that's, that is, and his back was broken at least twice, which accounted for his bad posture. And now here he was in the United States having lunch with me, trying to raise money to purchase Bibles to send back to China. This man trusted in Jesus Christ because he saw another man hauling manure to a community garden. I don't know what you do for a living, but I'm willing to guess that God could probably use even what you do to be an example to people around you as to what it means to be faithful in what God has given you to do. If this man had given his life to Christ because he saw a guy hauling manure to a garden, do you not think for a moment that he can use whatever it is that you hate to do and you would recognize that God has placed you there for a purpose and that's to make an impact on the lives of people around you that God could do the same in the lives of those who come in contact with you just because you're faithful in serving others and not always concerned about what you get out of it? Isn't that fascinating? You know, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, man, you know what? See, Paul could have said, hey, like every other speaker of that day, I'm not going to work night and day. I'm not going to go out and, and make tents or do leather work. I don't have to do that. I'm a teacher. I'm a preacher. I'm a pastor. And you know what's kind of interesting in our, in our world of professionalism? When people run, when they run into me and they say, well, wait a minute, you're, you're a contractor. I say, well, how, how do you teach the Bible? See, it, it, it's like, you know, it's not as impacting if that's not what you do for a living. If you're not a professional Bible teacher preacher, then what you have to say isn't as important as somebody who's gone through seminary and now gets paid to do that as if somehow it's more important coming out of their mouth than it is coming out of the mouth of somebody who just opens the word and shares it with people. And we've gotten to the point in our culture where we're looking at everything as a professionalism. Oh, you're not a professional pastor. You're not a professional minister. And you're an enigma in this culture because people can't figure out what to do with you. They can't pigeonhole you or place you in something. And so as a result, it's like, well, we don't understand. How can you do what you do and still be in the construction business? Now, I didn't tell them I was a lawyer. But they say, how can you do what you do and still be a contractor? What do you mean? Hey, the Apostle Paul worked with leather. He was a tent maker. He made belts and boots and shoes and whatever. That's what he did, and he preached the Word of God. And you know what was wonderful about it was that no one accused him of using them just to fatten his own pocket. It's a fascinating thing. You know, if I was in this for money, I wouldn't be here. Because I don't get paid. I figured that out 15 years ago, and the pay is still the same, even though they doubled it every year. But... But why, why do I say it? I'll tell you why I say that. Because I'm offered opportunities to go speak at other churches every weekend that you can imagine. Or do retreats every weekend. And they want to pay to have people do that. But you know what? I'm committed to be here because I love you and I love the Word of God. And it's free. And, I, and that's not... Don't misunderstand. That's not, that wasn't for a cheap applause. Um, but the, yeah, I thought you could have did better than that. But anyway... <laughs> But no, seriously. But what's the point? The point is, is that, hey, you know what? God's providing for our family. And so I don't have to do that. I mean, there are those who do, and that's fine. And this isn't to say I'm better than them or not better than them. This is just to make a point. My personal ministry philosophy is very simple. God is providing for us in other ways that I don't have to use this as an opportunity to raise more money. Could have paid off our house, you know, probably years ago. But we don't get paid on any tapes, any tapes you send anybody. It's, we don't get paid on any of that. I don't get paid to teach here. I don't get paid for anything. I'm doing it because I love to do it. And you know what else it does? It makes it harder for you to disqualify what I'm saying because you think I'm in it for something myself. This is my personal ministry philosophy. I've shared it before and I'll share it again. And here's as simple as it gets. Some folks, some folks are paid to be good and I'm just good for nothing. 
Well, there you go. All right. Number three, let's roll. Number three, the third motivation, as if the first motivation, and I understand something, the first motivation should have been enough, and that was this. Hey, we're commanded by God to work and and to to get busy. That should be enough. But in case it wasn't, then we were motivated by the example of Paul who said, hey, I did it myself, and I expect you to do it. I led the way. I'm an example for you. The third is the encouragement of the church. And in fact, look at that, verses 11 through 15, and I'm going to be nice to you. If you've got to go, go ahead and go, but I'm going to take 10 more minutes because we're we're finishing this today, so bear with me. Um, it says, for we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but they're acting like busybodies. It says, now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion, eat their own bread. But as for you, now this has to do with everybody else, but as for you, brethren, he says this, don't grow weary of doing what is good. Don't grow weary of doing good. You see what he's saying? The encouragement of the rest of us should be this. If you will not do what God called you to do and you won't get busy doing it, then the rest of us should encourage you to make sure that you're doing what's right. Get busy doing what God wants you to do. And this whole idea of busybodies cracks me up. And let me get this out right now, and that's this. Have you ever noticed how many people are pointing fingers at other people who are doing things? They sit around in groups or committees and they criticize what other people are doing, how they could be doing it better, how they should be doing it differently, how they should be doing it the way they want it done. And the people who are sitting around pointing fingers at other people who are busy doing things, the only thing they're busy doing is sitting around pointing fingers at other people who are busy doing stuff. Why? Because they're not busy doing their own stuff. I don't even have time to know what anybody else around here is doing. I'm too busy doing it. We have meetings all the time about how we should be doing stuff. The people they always invite to the meetings are the people who are doing stuff. We need to be inviting people to the meetings that aren't doing stuff. So we can encourage them to do stuff. How's that? I mean, that's what he's saying. It's like, hey, just get busy doing stuff and you don't have to worry about what anybody else is doing. The only people who are worrying about what everybody else is doing are people who have way too much time on their hands. So get busy and do stuff. And those of us who are doing stuff, whether you're leading a small group, whether you're in a Bible study, whether you're doing a one-on-one Bible study, whether it is that you're out you know, uh, you know, telling people in your neighborhood or people at your work about Jesus, whatever it is that you're doing, you're busy doing it, hey, I just want to commend you and say you just keep on doing it and don't worry about what other people tell you or think you should do that aren't doing anything. Consider where it's coming from. You just keep on doing what God's called you to do. Get busy doing what God wants you to do. That's the encouragement that we should have with one another. Hey, thank you for doing what you're doing. Now just keep on doing it. Don't worry about how I would do it or whether I'd do it differently or whatever. Because, hey, you know what? That doesn't matter. You do what God's called you to do. And you do it to the best of the ability that God has given you. See, that's all that Paul's trying to say. There are people hanging around and all you are is busy being a busybody. You know what? Knock it off. And in fact, he says this. And if you know people that are like that and they're not busy doing what they're supposed to be doing, just stay away from them. Love them, but stay away from them. Don't go to the other extreme, because look what he says. Here's the problem. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and don't associate with him. You know, the purpose of biblical discipline is reconciliation. It's not destruction of that other person. It's to love them and to build them up. The purpose of discipline as a parent is to build up your child, not to crush or destroy that child's spirit. It's to teach them right or wrong and encourage them to choose right. That's what godly discipline is all about. It's not to destroy people. We can do a whole thing just on discipline, but the purpose is to build each other up, not to destroy each other when we make mistakes. But he's saying if you want to build that person up and they still don't want to work and they still want to lounge around and be busybodies and count on other people to support them, then just stay away from them. You can continue to love them. Don't regard them as an enemy. Admonish them as a brother. But if they don't listen to you, just stay away from them because they're just going to wear you down. And in fact, you know what will happen? The more you're around people that aren't doing the right thing, the more you'll come to the conclusion, why should I? See what it says? Why should I? Some of us in verse 13 have grown weary for doing good because we're looking around and other people aren't working. So what? You just keep doing what you're supposed to do. Don't say, I'm not going to do it anymore because they're not doing it. Who cares what they're doing? Did you hear about this guy that that swallowed a four-inch, like a six-inch fish? This guy swallowed a six-inch fish. He was at a party. They were drinking with some of his friends and his friends dared him to swallow a six-inch fish. Okay, check it out. By the time the paramedics got there, all they saw was the tail out in the back of this guy's throat. Okay? And the guy suffocated to death. 
He was 23 years old, was dared to swallow a six-inch fish by some of his friends, and he swallowed it, but he didn't swallow all of it. And he died, and the sheriff said this. It's very simple. He said, you know, the guy's 23 years old. If they would have took him out and said, hey, I dare you to jump off this building, would he have done it? He goes, I can't really feel sorry for the guy. He was old enough and wise enough that he should have known better than to try to swallow a six-inch fish. So guess what? He suffered the consequence of a bad decision. Now, I'm sitting there thinking, you know what? Hey, some of us, are, we get the same mentality. Well, you're not going to do it? I'm not going to do it. Well, who are you being disobedient to? To God. God tells you to do it. I think you better do it. Not only that, but he also enables you to do it. And we'll close on this. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with all of you. And I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And you know what? And we, need, we really need God's grace to serve him with a proper heart. We need God's grace to serve him by encouraging those around us that are disobedient to God, but we need his grace to do it with a proper heart. And there's no one who can ever say this, but I can't do it. I can't work. If you can't physically work or you've got something wrong with you, it's not a matter of I can't work, it's a matter of will you work. And that's what he's saying. There's a big difference between the two. He's saying that, you know what, you and I who say I can't do something God's commanded us to do are are calling God a liar because God enables us to do all that he commands us. God's commandments are his enablements. If he commands it, we can do it if we want to be obedient. So we'll close on this. These two letters taught clearly that Jesus Christ is coming back again. We need to be faithful and busy doing what God's called us to do while we wait for him to come. There was a man who was in Europe and he saw this beautiful garden and he saw the couple that took care of the the garden. It was just beautiful grounds. And as he walked all through the grounds, he was just he was mesmerized by the beauty of the garden, of the beauty of the roses, the beauty of the hedges, and how they were trimmed, and the grass and everything. And he went up to the gardener and he said, um, where's the owner? He said, well, the, the owner is gone. He said, well, uh, when was the last time you saw the owner? He said, well, it was, um, it'll be 10 years next month. He said, well, wait a minute, I understand something. The owner hasn't been here for 10 years and you keep this garden as immaculate and, our, and, just, and just incredibly beautiful as it is? He said, why? What motivates you to do it? What motivates you to stay busy doing what you're doing when you haven't seen the owner in 10 years? He says, because when he left, he gave me a task to do, and I've been faithful to do it, and he, almost, and he, all, and he also promised that he'll be back. Now, this guy wasn't standing at the end of the, of the road looking out the gate looking down the road to see if the owner was coming so he could hurry up and clean the place up. This guy was just faithful doing what he was asked to do, and it really doesn't matter whether the owner was upstairs in his bedroom or the owner was on a trip or the owner was gone. But the point was he was faithful doing what he had been chosen to do and called to do. And the point is this. Jesus Christ is coming back. Are you ready for his return? The Bible says if you have not believed in him, that you need to give him your heart and trust in him as Lord and Savior. For God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish or be judged, but have everlasting life. If you have not done that, do so, because then you'll be prepared for his coming. If you have given him your life and you've invited him into your life as your Lord and Savior, then the Bible says now you have a responsibility to get busy doing what God has called you to do and to be faithful so that when he does return, he says to you and I, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. That's what prophecy is all about. That's what teaching about future thing is all about. Just so that we would be faithful today in that expectation of what we can look forward to tomorrow. Father, thank you for this time that we've gone through both these letters. We just thank you for the truth of your word that teaches of the return, the eminent return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. God, we just thank you that we have passed from judgment into life if we have trusted in Christ that you have given us a responsibility to be here and to be used by you and be faithful in the task that you've given us. God, help us to become busy in your work and not busy bodies that slow down those around us who want to be obedient to you. We just thank you what you can do through a servant's heart in a world that is so bent on just doing whatever pleases themselves or whatever, you know, however they can benefit. May we be people who stand out from that crowd to do what we do because we love you and we love the people around us in whom we serve. We just thank you in Christ's name. Amen.